Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 68, Revelation, Worthy is the Lamb. And in this episode, we're going to conclude Revelation chapter 5, looking primarily at verses 11 through 14. And what I'd like to do in this episode is to sort of round out the discussion about this lion-lamb imagery and then to make some comparisons again about the way that the Lord God chooses to rule and as he chooses to reveal himself, which he does so perfectly through the sacrificial lamb, and then contrast that a little bit with what I think Revelation is doing by giving us this image of the one seated on the throne is in fact the one who is receives worship alongside the sacrificial lamb. I believe we're meant to read that as, a, as um, something that stands in direct opposition to the way that Rome and the beast and Babylon seek to exercise their rule. And so as we look into wrapping this up, we're going to see a few significant things. I'll tie in some other aspects of the podcast to this point to help bring you along and to remind you of some things we've already looked at. And then we will really be prepared to jump into probably what is the the most difficult parts to interpret, um, chapter 6 and onward. But we will have a much, much clearer and richer perspective with which to try to tackle those seemingly complicated portions of the book. And so I'm excited for this episode as well. Let's just jump right in. To get things started this week, allow me just to read Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, as we'll see when we proceed through the rest of the book, this verse 14 at the end of chapter five kind of Um, brings to a close this particular um, image of this heavenly scene that John is witnessing and has been taken up to perceive things from this heavenly perspective. And it won't be the last time in the book of Revelation where we will get to see things from a heavenly perspective. And I'll point those out to you as we go through the book. But what I want to point out to you right here is just this comparison we've seen now in chapter 4 with the Lord God the Almighty and receiving worship and praise from the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Now that we are introduced to this one who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it and to to break its seals, as John is told, the, the central and centering vision is simply expanding now. It's growing. And what was identified in chapter four as primarily the one seated on the throne, now right in the midst of this scene, we're introduced to a new uh, character in the story. Although the way John explains the relationship between the lamb who was slain and the one seated on the throne is absolutely brilliant. But he, the way he describes the worship that takes place is is uniting the two for us. And and I just want to remind you, in, in Revelation 4, um, we're given a, a similar phrase that, that I've titled this 
podcast episode with, you know, worthy is the lamb. But in Revelation 4.11, it ends with worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then you have in Revelation 5, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so you have here in this scene, you have similar phrases that are given. You have glory, honor, power are both attributed to the to um, worthy are you, our Lord and God from Revelation chapter four, but they're also attributed to the lamb in Revelation chapter five. And so the worship that the Lord God, the Almighty receives is shared by the lamb who was slain. And as I shared last week in the episode, John is really bringing these two images together powerfully for us to show us that the crucified Christ, the lamb who was slain, belongs to the way God rules the world. This is the true God. He's been revealed to us as such And the fact that he so closely aligns to the one who is seated on the throne and receives the same worship from from these creatures determines for us and shows us that Jesus, in fact, shares the divine worship that God is due. And so Bauckham, Richard Bauckham, again in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, just says it's important to notice how the scene here is so structured that the worship of the Lamb leads to the worship of God and the Lamb together by verse 13 in this chapter. John does not wish to present Jesus as an alternative object of worship alongside God, but as one who shares in the glory due to God. And that's a very, very good way to put it because in verse 13 of chapter five, John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So these attributes are given to both God and the lamb, the one who sits on the throne as John identifies him. But just to kind of pull some thoughts together, I was thinking about how I wanted to tie this in. And I thought, you know, we could sort of go back and do a little replay of of a few episodes that we've looked at throughout the course of the podcast. And one that instantly came to mind was episode seven. And for those of you who are listening to these as they come out, Revelation or episode seven was probably released sometime in November of 2018, so I know it's been a while, Um, but in that episode, we looked at the way that Exodus chapter 20 speaks of the Sabbath, and in episode 7, God's Sabbath rest, we just tried to look at why does the Lord God take a rest after he creates the world, and um, we looked at a few things there, and I won't go into all the details, but But in Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, when it speaks of the Sabbath, it roots the reason for observing the Sabbath in God's work as the creator. And we're told in Exodus 20 that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, therefore you're supposed to do the same. And of course, we we know, based on episode 5, made in the image of God, that we are supposed to mirror God in the way that we live, and so how we understand the way he exercises his rule is supposed to determine the way we exercise ours. And so if the Lord God rests because he creates in six days, he works in six days and rests on the seventh, we are to follow suit. 
But I also pointed out in episode seven, God's Sabbath rest, that in Deuteronomy five, when the 10 commandments are repeated to the second generation of Israelites about ready to enter the promised land, the reason Moses gives for why the people should keep the Sabbath is different than in Exodus chapter 20. In Deuteronomy, the reason for observing the Sabbath is rooted in God's work as redeemer. So he says, you know, you were slaves and the Lord redeemed you and gave rest to you. Therefore, you are to treat those in your care with the same kindness and compassion. So giving your animals a day to rest inviting in your slaves, your male servants and your female servants into a day where work is not defining their identity, but rather enjoyment and pleasure and relaxation and um, being able to experience the presence of God in a world where all of the work is accomplished and you can now sit and enjoy it. And so the people are to keep the Sabbath. We know that much is clear, but there are two parallel reasons given for doing so. And they're both significant. And both of them accurately root the people's observance of the Sabbath firmly in the character of God himself. And so the way we enter the rest of God or the way we enjoy him fully is by worshiping him as both creator and redeemer. And we've talked about this briefly, but one of the most profound ways the New Testament knows how to speak about salvation or how to speak about redemption is to call it a new creation. So that's precisely the way the Bible speaks about it. And I think it's helpful for us to do so, keeping in mind both the images of creator and redeemer. Well, fascinatingly enough, it is these two aspects of God that John is offering us in his vision of the, in the heavenly places. God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the one seated on the throne, the creator from Revelation 4, and God, the lamb who was slain, the one who has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, the redeemer, Revelation chapter 5. You can't distinguish the two from one another. The one seated on the throne and the lamb are united. They both occupy the space in the midst of the throne. They both receive the same adjectives offered in worship. And the worship they receive is from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Now, this is just fascinating to me because we've come all the way from the beginning of the Bible, clear now to the end, and we've got these same two themes working in tandem. The Lord God who creates everything also creates a people, redeems them from slavery in Egypt. And then when Moses is able to give the Ten Commandments to the people at two separate occasions, just through our reading of the Ten Commandments, we see that there are two angles running parallel, which best capture the image of who our God is. Sure, he's creator and he needs to be worshiped as such. But if we left the vision off at the end of Revelation 4, with God being merely the creator you can interpret that as he created you, he owns you, he owns everything, he can threaten and punish you if you don't obey him. And sometimes that is a way that people tend to portray God to the rest of the world. And it saddens me, and sometimes it makes me angry, to be honest, although I, I'm trying not to let that you know, give full vent to the anger because of what we find in Revelation 5. God is not a tyrant 
like Caesar in Rome, in Babylon, um, dictating the way you have to follow him and you have to serve him. How does the Lord God exercise his rule over the world? By self-sacrificially coming under those who are under him, serving them and laying his life down for them. That's an invitation in my mind not to run away from God in fear that he's going to punish you if you disobey him, but rather one that is inviting you into intimacy and fellowship with him through his um, initiating of salvation and redemption. And so we looked at this in episode 46, the, the Alpha and the Omega, that the Lord God, the one on the throne, the Lord God, the Almighty, and now Jesus himself, the sacrificial lamb, are meant to be united um, now, that particular episode of the podcast actually generated quite a bit of discussion from some of you listeners, and that was awesome. I loved it. Um, it was a brand new paradigm for quite a few of you. I uh, heard from a number of you that you shared that particular episode with some people who you don't know if they even listened to any of my podcasts because that was such a, such a reframe in your mind. And so if you haven't yet listened to that episode, I would encourage you to do so. But I think Revelation is encouraging us to continue that pattern. It's how do we keep united and inseparable the one seated on the throne, the creator, and the lamb who was slain, the redeemer. Both receive worship from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Therefore, both are worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and power and might and honor and wisdom and strength and so on. And so if you continue on down through this list, what you see is that um, John is saying, I've heard every creature, oh, I'm sorry. Um, let, let's back up actually just, just a little bit right before the passage that I read. Um, I've actually put this in my notes and realized I didn't even read the whole passage again. But if I, I back up to the last couple verses that we read last week, verses 9 and 10, it says, um, you know, that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, right in the center here, we, we see this kingdom of priests language um, right here. It says, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so I just want you to, again, to think back with me, if you will, to all that we've covered so far in the podcast, at, at least on a, on a handful of, of episodes. So, you know, think of episode number five, made in the image of God. God created us, created mankind at the beginning to rule. And this passage here in Revelation 5 highlights that the Lamb has ransomed people or redeemed people to, as it says, to reign on the earth. And so what the Lamb is doing in redeeming and restoring back to the original intention is why we picked up themes like, wow, we're supposed to rule based upon Genesis chapter 1, right? And man has not done that effectively. Jesus has redefined what it actually means to rule well, and now he is commissioning a people that he has redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation to be able to actually carry that out. And so then think of episode number 10, A Garden in Eden. In episode 11, Work It and Keep It, 
which was the, the work of, of a priest. And then episode 12, Eden's Garden Temple. And all three of these episodes dealt with humanity's role as both kings and priests. And in Revelation 5 now, we see Jesus' self-sacrifice being offered um, by his blood in order to restore back to us this original calling. So he's got both the images, a kingdom and priests. And so think even of episode number 24, how it all fits together. This one I got some comments on as well from longtime friends and some who I know who are in ministry who said, well, I've plowed through a handful of theological books and things tend to be somewhat confusing, but that was the clearest explanation I've had in a while of how the whole Bible fits. And of course, I used a book for that that was not original to me. Um, and I have kind of taken that in slightly different directions o- over the years as my own understanding. I'm trying to put this together, but into how it all fits together. My goal was to say, what is the Bible, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 from 30,000 feet? Like, can we get the big picture before we dip down into the details? And what we did was we used the lens of the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing as a framework for understanding the entire Bible from beginning to end. And again, right here in Revelation 5, he has made them a kingdom and priests. And so in episode 27, just a few episodes after the how it all fits together, we looked at priests in need of a priest. And I tried to show you an example from Exodus 32 of what living as a priest actually means by highlighting the spirit behind what it means to be God's priest versus what it all too often looks like to be man's priest. And if you remember that episode, we looked at when the Israelites committed idolatry on the top of or at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses was on the top of the mountain receiving the law from the Lord. Aaron had been the people's, or God's appointed priest for the people. So here's Aaron trying to stand in the gap, representative of the people to God. And Moses, of course, is going to be God's representative to the people as we see that interchange happening. And so what we watch is that we have two very different views of what Moses does in standing in the gap for God, um, 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 to the people on behalf of God. And then we have Aaron who's standing, well, <laughs> unfortunately, um, on behalf of himself in relation to God as he quite literally throws the people under the bus. And what we have is, is this idea that we are going to image the character of who we think God is by the way we choose to intercede for others as God's priest. And I think Moses images God well, and Aaron doesn't. And so, of course, all this kingdom of priests language, we're told, applies to people ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, these are typically words that we use of, and in our minds, we oftentimes picture, if you're like me, I I take concepts and I kind of picture them in my mind, but you, you sort of take these ideas as if they were geographical plots of space. So every tribe, all these are these third world countries, you know, nobody knows their language. They don't even have a written language or tribe and language. Okay, here's a, a group of people, Chinese or or Korean or, or whatever it is, a, a people or a nation. You know, we talk about the nation um, of America or the nation of Israel or, um, or so on. And so in other words, the kingdom that we're told the Lamb has established by describing it as ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, we 
we can't blow by this. We can't just read this and say, wow, isn't this cool? Jesus loves a lot of people. Um, I mean, you can say that, but what you need to know this implies is that the kingdom, the kingdom and priests, right? This is what he's chosen to make people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's chosen to make them a kingdom. Okay, so he's taking people from every tribe and language and people and nation, pulling them from all over the place, all over the world, and pulling them into a singular kingdom. So the moment you acknowledge that and the moment you say that, you need to understand that the kingdom that the Lamb has established is not a geographical or geopolitical kingdom. It's not confined to any one nation. In fact, it supersedes nations. It just transcends them altogether. It doesn't operate within national borders. It doesn't operate within national identities, races, or ethnicities. Its focus is on people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so what this literally means, if you think back to episode 56, we, we talked about this. And I tried to share with you why I think this matters. And in episode 56, uh, Revelation challenging the empire, I shared with you that I believe the book of Revelation offers a critique of any one nation's sovereignty and certainty that the quote-unquote gods are on their side and that their way of seeing and ruling the world is automatically shared by the gods. Okay, Rome thought this. Greece thought this. Babylon thought this. Assyria thought this. There was a time when Israel was convinced that this was also true and believed that their way of living was going to be backed by God because Israel was his special chosen people. I am saddened to say that there are many today in the country in which I live, America, who tend to think the same thing. They tend to think that God and God's ways are primarily carried about through America's activities and America's actions. And I, I've gone through in different episodes why I think people do that. I just want to make it abundantly clear how wrong that is and how misguided that is. Because the moment you say that, that the lamb who was slain has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom, you literally obliterate all of the focuses in which case we call upon God's name to support or to back our own particular nation. So for Christians who happen also to be Americans, the way Peter explains this in 1 Peter chapter 2 is he talks about the fact that we, Christians, the church, are a kingdom of priests. So we live in a kingdom, it's called America, which is a nation, and it has a language, and it has a people, the American people, all of these things that are described. But Jesus' work as the lamb who was slain is not in partnership with American principles as a nation or a people or a language. America exists as a kingdom of this world. That is not what the Lamb has redeemed for God. He has redeemed the kingdom of God for God. And this people from every tribe and language and people and nation is scattered all throughout the world. And so when you talk about 
you know, Richard Bauckham says it like this, which I love. I just think it's great. He says, the coming of God's kingdom on earth must therefore be the replacement of Rome's pretended divine sovereignty by the true divine sovereignty of the one who sits on the heavenly throne. Significantly, this conflict of sovereignties is often portrayed in the rest of Revelation by references to worship. And then he goes on to say that every stage of God's victory through Revelation chapters 7 through 19 is accompanied by worship in heaven. And he's exactly right. And I'm going to show you those spaces. Revelation 7 is one of those instances. Revelation 14 is one of those instances. Revelation 12 gives us another image of some certain things from a heavenly perspective. And we'll have time to look at that as we get to it. But he goes on to say that not to submit to Roman rule, not to glorify its violence and its prophets, required a perspective alternative to the Roman ideology which permeated public life. Now, I love his words because this perspective alternative, as he calls it, that's exactly what we're given in Revelation 4 and 5. The one seated on the throne is not only not Caesar, but the way in which the Lord God rules from his throne stands in direct contradiction to the way every human ruler exercises power. And we've talked about this. We've talked about the, the power under kingdom of the cross and the power over kingdom of the sword and power over um, it, it could use violence, but it also could be limited to the way that kingdom advances is through lawmaking, through threat of imprisonment or, or discipline or punishment. If you do not comply with that nation's you know, governance over you, that sort of thing. And so the kingdom of God, Jesus doesn't operate in that way. He doesn't People don't flock to Jesus because he stands above them, threatening that if they don't listen to what he says, that they're going to die. You know, Jesus invites people in to be healed from oppression and from being enslaved to their own sins. And people loved him because he stooped beneath them and served them and invited them into the kingdom. And so when you read the phrases, you know, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, for those things to be attributed to the lamb as the lamb indicates that those same attributes can't be found anywhere else. They're certainly not going to be found in a power over, power of the sword type of a kingdom. And this is the Christian message. Anyone choosing to follow Christ Anyone desirous of blessing, glory, honor, and wisdom must expect that they are ours for the taking as we follow the way of the crucified Christ, as we embody the pattern of the Christ in our witness to him as his lampstands. Now, as we bring this episode to a close, um, I just want to pose a question to you, and that is, does this come across as wishful thinking to you? Um, <laughs> that's such a view that the way to rule and the way to demonstrate, you know, power and authority and to get things done and to accomplish your will is to self-sacrificially lay down your life for your enemies. You know, like that a view like this, it actually going to get you nowhere in the real world that all the talk of self-sacrificial, compassionate power under dying love for one's enemies is mere foolishness. And, and that's a question I want to pose to you. Because um, Paul tells the Corinthians that this very thing is believed 
um, by those who are perishing. And in 1 Corinthians 1, here's what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, I'll be real honest with you. I I think with every passing year of a believer's life, um, each and every one of us will come to deeper and richer understandings of things that we may have believed our whole life, or as long as we can remember anyway, but never fully grasped. And I'm not claiming to have fully grasped this at all. But I will tell you, I did not used to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 19 quite like that before. Drawing out implications of power and identifying it as the word of the cross, which Paul will later talk about in the end of 2 Corinthians, talking about God's power is made perfect in weakness. And it's in fact the weakness of the cross, the appearance that that's stupid. Like God's not going to accomplish his rule from a throne. You can't, if you, if you, you know, bend down and stoop and serve those, you're going to get walked all over. That, that's not the image that Paul's talking about here. And yet Paul has to deal with that to the church in Corinth. So in Corinth and in Rome, as Revelation is addressing, we're presented with two very different conceptions of power. Where is real power to be found? And what does it truly look like to exercise real power? That's the question that Revelation is offering us an answer to. And according to John in Revelation 4 and 5, lion-like power is exercised self-sacrificially like a lamb. This is how Greg Boyd's uh, phraseology, which I love so much, is this power over kingdom of the sword versus power under kingdom of the cross. How do you utilize power? How do you hope and long for God to utilize his power? And what do you do with those people you perceive to be enemies of yours for whatever reason? And how is it that you hope God will both judge and save the world? We looked at in last week's episode that that is the thrust of what this scroll actually is. And despite what many people get confused over, what you see in chapters 6 and 7 and 8 is just the breaking of the seals that have sealed this scroll shut. They are not the contents of what's actually found in the scroll. They are just the beginning stages of getting to the point when you and I are going to be able to get to the heart of what is written on that scroll and what makes God's judgment and salvation of the world so potent. That is the direction that Revelation is going, and it's going to be necessary to keep in mind this vision of a conquering lion who is a self-sacrificial lamb. That is the image. It is the central and centering vision of the entire book of Revelation, And we won't get five verses into chapter six before we are confronted with the word conquering again. 
and you're going to have a choice. How do you want to interpret that word conquer? Do you want to interpret it through the lens of the way Rome and Babylon conquer? Or would you like to interpret it through the lens of the way Jesus conquers? And as a free listener to the book of Revelation, and now in our case, also a reader, you're given the choice. You're given the opportunity to make that decision. But the way you make that decision is going to tell the world a lot about you just as much as you think it's telling them about God. And so we're going to walk through that and we'll jump into that next week. And I can't wait to do it. So that's all the time we'll take as we've wrapped up chapter five. I did want to make a note that at the end of this episode in the show notes, I will make a link to a recent video that a good friend of mine helped me to make. Actually, it was right before Christmas, and um, he filmed for a couple hours with me, and we just put together a real short minute and a half video of the podcast. I'm really excited about it. I think he nailed it. I think he knocked it out of the park, um, not because it's a video of me, but, but because he knows how to handle lighting, and he knows how to bring in good music. But follow that link. It'll take you to, to a Vimeo page where he's posted this video, and I would encourage you to share it with people. There might be some who won't take the time to listen to a 30-minute podcast episode, but they might watch a short video, and if it piques their interest at all, they may choose to want to follow the links and, and find their way over to Unbinding the Bible on a podcast app. So you are my faithful listeners who could maybe get this message out, and I would love for you to share the video on your Facebook page or to share it on your Instagram or however you can, if you care to do stuff like that. Uh, share it with friends, share it with family, um, trying to get the word spread to as many people as we can so that we can all fall in love with Jesus together and try to see him and understand him rightly and then invite him to transform us from the inside out. I believe that's the point of revelation. I, I think that's the point of the whole Christian life. And so um, I want to see your life transformed as well as I want to see my own. I want the church to recapture the beautiful vision of who we were created to be. And I want us to think and act in accordance with the beautiful vision that we've just looked at from Revelation 4 and 5. So that's all the time we're going to take for this week. See you next time.